To be a good physician, you have to be compulsive. You have to pay attention to detail or deal with human lives and well-being. We don't want to make mistakes. But the other side of compulsivity, in a sense, compulsivity gone wild, is the essence of addiction. It's the continued doing of something in spite of negative consequences. So the very trait that makes us good physicians also sets us up for addiction. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again this week. Well, today I am twice blessed because I have with me two great guests who are going to talk about something that really affects us all, and that is drug and alcohol addiction among healthcare providers, such as doctors and nurses. It's one of those things we all know probably exists, but something that no one really wants to talk about. Along with suicide and depression, drug use among physicians is not only hidden and kept quiet, but until these two gentlemen came together, was extremely difficult to treat. My two guests today are Stephen Walt and Dr. Michael Susher from Veritas. Veritas offers virtual substance abuse and trauma treatment programs exclusively for licensed medical professionals. And we're going to learn more about the incredible things that they're doing to help with this problem, which I think are real game changers in just a moment. But first, I want to introduce them. Stephen Walt is the CEO and co-founder of Veritas. His personal journey as an executive in corporate America with a substance use disorder and his recovery was the reason he created Veritas. Years of struggling to manage a career and his own treatment and recovery made him realize that additional treatment resources were needed for executives who are highly functional in the workplace. His goal was to bring together industry leaders in clinical treatment, executive coaching, and healthcare coordination to create a virtual outpatient treatment program specifically designed to meet the needs of the medical and legal communities. Next, we have Dr. Michael Susher, the Veritas Chief Medical Advisor. For over 30 years, Dr. Susher has been practicing addiction medicine. He is regarded nationally as a pioneer and foremost industry expert in alcohol and drug monitoring and aftercare programs. He has served as the medical director of the monitored aftercare programs for the Arizona Medical Board, the Arizona State Board of Dental Examiners, and the State Bar of Arizona. He was also the president of the California Physicians Health Program, and most recently, the Chief Medical Director for Community Bridges, which is a substance abuse and mental health treatment program in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Susher is a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians and a fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. He is the past president of the Arizona Society of Addiction Medicine and is nationally known speaker on addiction medicine and professional health issues. Well, gentlemen, Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here today. This is truly an honor to have you. And this is a topic that 
people need to hear about. So I'm really glad that you're here to share with my audience. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks Uh, for having us. Doing well, thanks. It is really great to speak to you both about an extremely important topic. And as I said in my intro, it's a topic that no one really wants to speak about. The premise of this podcast and really my work for the last 20 years is that every important moment in our lives involves a difficult conversation. And if you navigate correctly through that, you can really uh, help someone and help yourselves. And each week goes by, no matter whom I'm interviewing, the same themes keep coming up. Trust, good communication, commonality, and most importantly, relationships. The one topic that seems to be recurring over and over again is physician and nursing burnout. And it's without a question causing a major healthcare crisis. Physicians have the highest rate of suicide of any profession, and depression is at an all-time high. And we have explored the many reasons for those statistics on previous podcasts. But today we're talking about something really important, and that's drug and alcohol use in physicians. And so, Stephen, during the teaching of my communication, I tell everybody how important it is. Before you build trust, you have to first be a genuine person. You have to let people in and let them know you. So maybe we can start off with Stephen and just Tell us your journey on how you came to be the CEO of Veritas and just a little bit about yourself so we can start thinking of you and start trusting you and and this will just make everything better. Well, thank you for having us on the show and uh, I've become a a big fan of your podcast. I I listen to it after work on the drive homes. So uh, great job. You routinely bring on uh, good guests. So I hope Dr. Such and I will keep that trend going. We recently launched Veritas, which is a virtual substance abuse treatment program for licensed medical professionals that are struggling with alcohol, drugs, and trauma. And we're really excited about having that product in market. And the journey to get to this point has been uh, pretty incredible from my perspective. So I am a New Yorker and from the Northeast, similar to you. And early in my 20s, I was a quite a successful businessman. I had put in executive benefits at law firms and hospital systems and was really successful early in my career, and which is wonderful in many ways and really challenging in other ways. But in 2004, I I started developing a very significant cocaine addiction. And over a four-year period of time, I destroyed my life. I had built this really big business. I had a, a great stellar reputation in the community. I was on boards of nonprofits. I was actively involved in a country club and Over a four-year period of time, there was a progression of this cocaine addiction that almost killed me. And when I look back at that period of time and just how dark and scary it had gotten, it's really not even fathomable that I'm here today. And so I'm so grateful to be healthy and to be happy today and to have survived. I have so much respect for the disease of addiction. kind of robbed me of everything. It destroyed my family. Everything in its wake, the addiction I had, was just catastrophic. And 2007, 2008, I started going through what I call the great rehab tour. I joke around all the time when you see someone with a rock and roll t-shirt of all the cities that the band visits. Those are all the treatment centers that Steve went to in those years. I was going to the best places that money could buy and really unsuccessful. I had a desire to stay sober. I was willing to put resources and time to go away and get the help. Went around the country in search of that help, but I'd leave these treatment programs and within a month, I'd be back in a hotel room doing cocaine again and acting out in ways that were really painful. So I'd really reached a point in my life where I was backed into a corner and truth be told, I had become suicidal. I was seeking the best 
treatment I thought that was available to me and I couldn't stay sober and I was in a lot of pain. 2009, I found a treatment program in Hattiesburg, Mississippi called Pine Grove and Gentle Path. And they dealt with childhood trauma. And I actually was there for three months. And that was the turning point in my life. I have such profound respect for people that are in this business because it's really hard work. And without that organization, the work I did there, dealing with my childhood, I probably wouldn't be here today. So I have an immense amount of respect. People that specialize in childhood abuse, drug addiction, sex addiction, all the things that are a result of problematic childhoods like the one I had. I went out to Los Angeles and got back to my old career, helped launch a firm in Beverly Hills back in my old industry. But several years ago, just I hit a wall. I found myself not wanting to get out of bed in the morning. I just lost the zest to work. I think the healthier I got personally, the less I wanted to do what I was doing for a living. I had lost purpose and meaning. And so I started thinking about my journey as an executive in corporate America with a pretty significant mental health issue. And I started realizing that there were certain things that just kind of stood out to me. What stood out to me was just how difficult it is to talk about this topic in the workplace. And not being a doctor, just in corporate America with a significant mental health issue, living in the shadows, so scared to talk about that. So I, I just found that to be such a big issue. I also found that This country had these incredible clinical resources where I would go away for a period of time and then re-enter my life. I had a career that was complicated, I had a personal life that was complicated, and I just felt that the resources to navigate my career and early recovery and navigate my entry back into my life were kind of lacking in the recovery community. I kind of felt that we tried to treat addiction in this country like you've been in a car accident not like you have diabetes. And so I started thinking about what could I have added to my experience that would have helped me in my journey with addiction. And lastly, you'll see why I say this in a second. Before COVID, this was a pretty profound comment. I just found that it was so freaking inconvenient to live in New York and to live in Los Angeles and try to patient or client of an outpatient treatment facility. It would take you an hour to commute back and forth. I'd walk into a building where I could see my neighbor walking into another place and I'm walking into this treatment program. I just, it didn't sit well with me. I just found it to be so inefficient and just lack privacy. So I started thinking, well, maybe I'd like to do something in this space based on these experiences. And I had known Bob Miller, who's the chairman of board of Freedom Institute, which is a large nonprofit in New York City that since 1976 has been in the outpatient treatment business in Midtown Manhattan. And Bob and I just started talking about some of these thoughts I had and some of these experiences I had. And I think they were just open to an outsider's perspective. I was not from the industry. I was not from the field. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a clinician. I'm a drug addict in recovery who was a pretty significant executive at some point in time. And I just felt that things could be done better. Through a set of circumstances, we got to meet Dr. Michael Sutcher, who's like the guru in the space when dealing with executives and professionals that have substance use disorders. And, you know, the Freedom Institute, Bob Miller, Dr. Sutcher, and I, over the last few years, started to collaborate. And what we really wanted to create, pre-COVID, by the way, we really wanted to create treatment programs specifically designed for the medical community and specifically designed for the legal community 
and do so on a virtual platform where we can literally take the in-person treatment experience that Freedom Institute has been doing for decades, combine that with Dr. Sutcher's experience having one physician health programs for decades, bringing the two together to kind of create programming specific to meet the needs of medical professionals and the legal community. COVID hit, we decided to put all our resources forward in dealing with the medical professionals and we're in market today helping people. So it's been an amazing journey. That is an amazing journey. And I'm so glad that you are doing such good things and really you're giving back in so many ways. I think one of the things you take home from that story is the stereotype that people who are addicted to drugs are lower socioeconomic people who are poor when actually, as you said, you're a very high performing businessman and now you're helping doctors and lawyers and other professional people. But drug addiction knows no boundaries and uh, you can be poor or rich or male or female or black and white. But I think that the stigma of a physician being addicted to drugs is really something that no one wants to talk about. So Dr. Susher, how prevalent is addiction among physicians? And I don't know, do you deal with nurses also? How prevalent is it? Well, yeah, yes, Dr. Orsini, and I do deal with nurses as well, but primarily physicians, dentists, executives. Most people would tell you that 10 to 12% of the population will deal with a substance use disorder at some point in their life. I'm certain and most literature I've looked at and my experience shows me that physicians are at least that level and probably higher. I've heard estimates up to 18% at some point in their career. And some of that's for a number of reasons. To be a good physician, you have to be compulsive. You have to pay attention to detail or deal with human lives and well-being. We don't want to make mistakes. But the other side of compulsivity, in a sense, compulsivity gone wild, is the essence of addiction. It's the continued doing of something in spite of negative consequences. So the very trait that makes us good physicians also sets us up for addiction. Secondly, we have access to virtually every drug known to man, legal and illegal, and we usually have the money to buy them, and we have enablers. We have family who are invested in our continued working employees and office staff and colleagues who are invested and often will, without realizing it, cover up the disease until it progresses to a point where that's, you know, not possible to do any longer. The issue of burnout, I mentioned in the intro, is so high in medicine right now. We had Dr. Dyke Drummond on who literally wrote the book on physician burnout, and we've had a couple other guests, and that theme just keeps coming up. As COVID has definitely made burnout worse, and there's various reasons for burnout. So are you seeing a spike in this right now? Yes, I think we are. All the things you mentioned earlier, increased suicide, increased depression, burnout, which has been really prevalent in the health professions for quite a long time, has really kind of spiked. And in a lot of ways, burnout is the precursor to addiction and to mental health issues, depression and suicide. So part of the goal is if you can identify and intervene on a burning out physician earlier, you're more likely to prevent the development of an actual disease state and able to restore the person to health by providing support and uh, structure uh, and resources to help them do that. Yeah, I think he described a whirlwind that we live in. As a physician, I can certainly relate to that. I'm 56 years old now, and I'm still doing night shifts in the hospital, and I deal with the sickest of the sick newborns. 
And I can certainly relate to trying to get to sleep at 11 o'clock at night. You have a shift the next day, but you're still wound up from your last shift. And so I don't know what it's like to be, thankfully, to be a drug user. And it's that's never happened to me. But I certainly can understand how maybe you start off by taking something to help you sleep or taking you something to help you get through the shift. Is that generally how it starts? Typically, yes. In a sense, I've never met a single individual, physician or otherwise, who wanted to become addicted to drugs. Most people start for a host of reasons, but to help them sleep, particularly after night shifts, to deal with anxiety and stress, to deal with pain, even legitimate physical pain. And then so many doctors find that it helps with their emotional pain, too. And that's how it kind of goes off track. Anesthesia, which is a very high-risk specialty for substance use disorders among physicians, they're sort of experts at pharmacology, and they feel they know how to titrate these things. And the number that I've seen injecting fentanyl, propofol, Versed, to manage their mood, manage their sleep, manage their psychic pain, staggering. Yeah, it's a very high-stress job. I agree with that. Stephen, last time, and I guess this could be either for you or Dr. Susher, Last time we spoke, we talked about why the Veritas approach works. And Dr. Shisha, maybe you could comment on this. So every time I fill out, I have to renew my license every two years, or I have to get privileges at a new hospital. The questions, I have to answer the same 10 or 20 questions, right? And one question is, have you ever used drug or alcohol? Have you ever been addicted to drugs or alcohol? Is it a special problem that there's a bunch of doctors out there that maybe are having that conversation with themselves that I need help, but are afraid to do so? Well, most are very afraid of the stigma, and they typically don't answer truthfully to questions on a medical board renewal or a hospital medical staff renewal most of the time. Now, we, through the Federation of State Physician Health Programs, working with medical boards to ask questions that are less stigmatizing, less invasive, things like, do you currently have a condition which impairs your ability to practice your profession, which can be medical, psychiatric, or substance use disorder related. But to try and make the question, but not have you ever, or not have you ever seen a psychiatrist, things like that which can be very fear-producing and very stigmatizing. And we don't want to do that. We want to provide support and encourage people to get help and get help early. I think one of the things, the whole notion of Veritas is, is to be able to intervene on and help treat people before they end up in front of the medical board or a medical executive committee or heads of their medical group for some serious consequence. And please educate me because I don't know this. So I'm sure that there's a bunch of people out there that are listening right now that maybe are having that conversation with themselves. They're afraid to say something. No matter how you word that question, they're getting ready to check yes, and they're afraid, am I going to lose my privileges? So please educate us. Like, What does the law say for that physician or nurse who, or a lawyer who may need some help? Are they being protected if they say yes? Well, the trouble is you don't know. In every state, in every hospital, you know, every credentials and executive committee are probably different. And it also depends on who's looking at it. Physician health programs, which exist in almost every state, are typically advocacy-oriented. Most of them have confidentiality if you seek help from them before being ordered to go by a, a licensing board or something like that. And they can be a resource. And I've operated the Arizona program for over 25 years. 
I do this kind of work in Nevada and have done it in California. And I've always said, please call me up. Say your name is John or Jane Doe. I'll be happy to help guide you and answer questions because they're all afraid. They're all afraid. And I can imagine, Stephen, that was what you were going through, too, when you were a high-performing executive. I would imagine that was something that you really tried to keep as quiet as possible. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. Not being a physician, where they take it to this whole other level. But I'll tell you what I would never do is use the resources provided by my employer. Right? So as sophisticated as employment benefit packages or EAPs, I mean, there wasn't a chance. I would use any of those resources for fear of the consequences for doing so. And it's really interesting as as I get to spend more time in this space and really try to understand how can we best be of service to this community. It it is an uphill battle because as we look at the market right now, there is the market for those that have been mandated to treatment where a physician monitoring program and employer you know, the gig's up. You got caught, right? Your license is at risk. We, we want you to receive and get good quality treatment, allowing you to continue to practice medicine. There's that market. And we believe that a virtual treatment program can allow a few things. It can allow you to access care a lot easier. It can allow you to continue to work and remain in the home, which is critically important for the right person. And we can deliver care at a fraction of the cost. So telehealth allows you to do that in a way that has never been done before. But unfortunately, that's such a small part of the market. The person that has been caught, there is this massive untapped market of medical professionals that are out there today that are suffering, that no matter what you say or do, are not going to seek out any form of treatment. So we've been spending quite a bit of time trying to think about less stigmatized solutions to meet people where they are. And the reality is finding ways to deliver coaching services and coaching programs to physicians and nurses that's not clinical treatment, really for that part of the market where people are voluntarily seeking out help is something still under development that we're really excited about as well. But I think it's really for anybody that's listening right now, as a treatment provider, right? we are not mandated to report you to any type of medical board if you are voluntarily seeking out treatment, nor is any physician that's in the treatment program with you mandated to report you to a medical board. Really important to get that point across. That is really important. I want to ask you the topic of this podcast is difficult conversations. Dr. Susher knows this. So just by the very nature of being a physician, we are an odd type. We're the guys that didn't maybe go out on a Friday or Saturday night because I had a test on Tuesday. And when I uh, was dating my wife in college, she said, are we going out Friday night? So I have a test Tuesday. And she just laughed. And I said, well, I need to get an A if I get a B, God forbid. So we're high strung. And then by the very nature of saying, I'm willing to put someone's life in my hand. So we walk around like with a big S on our chest or Superman. And Sooner or later, there's a doctor out there who's starting to realize he has some problems. I guess my question's for Steven. So the first time you realize you had a problem, what do you say to that doctor? There's a conversation that goes on with yourself that says, I have a problem because I would imagine you're first in denial. How does that conversation go? Maybe you could help somebody with that. It's fascinating. The one thing that I find 
that is so helpful is when I say, me too. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to lecture you. I'm a recovering drug addict. You know, I happen to be CEO of this organization. And, but at the end of the day, when it boils down to, I know exactly where you have been. And I totally understand how you're feeling right now. And there is no judgment. And one of the beautiful things about Alcoholics Anonymous, which is separate from what we do, and it's a really important part of my life. One alcoholic talking to another alcoholic, magic happens. And so when I have the ability to talk to a physician or someone that is struggling with just the ability if someone has heard my story, hopefully someone listens to this podcast and just feels a little safer to just open up and have a conversation. That's why I tell the story. And I think about the role that I can play right now. For some reason, I survived an insane run with drug addiction. And I just think about my purpose today and to continue to try to break down barriers and talking about my story so that perhaps there's someone listening right now that feels safe enough to pick up the phone and call me. And I just feel like that's my purpose today. And that's how I answer that question. I'm watching your face so the audience can't see because this is audio only, but I'm watching your face and I can see the passion that you have. And there's nothing more magical than when someone feels a passion to help somebody because they've been there. And so I wish my audience could see your body language right now, but I can sense it in your voice also. Dr. Susher, what about that S on the chest? What do you tell those people who think they're Superman? Like me, we all do. While denial and minimizing are kind of universal in substance use disorders, most of the physicians that I end up coming in contact with, deep down, they know they have a problem and they're really looking for help and guidance and a way through the fear. The good news is that most physicians are able to get good treatment, have structured, accountable, supportive monitoring, and they do well. Most of the peer-reviewed literature, as well as my own experience, 85 to 95 percent of physicians five years later are still clean and sober, are back to work, families, career, everything intact. That's a great stat. And if you can tell somebody and convince them that, look, if you get help and you get help early, and I also medicalize it, the earlier you diagnose diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, or cancer, the more likely it is that you will have a good outcome. Well, the same is true with the substance use disorder. And I think that's really a key part of what Veritas is trying to do is to early recognition, early intervention, early treatment to prevent those consequences. I can count on less than two hands the number of physicians who've lost their medical license in the last 25 years. You have to really be resistant and noncompliant and stay in denial to get revoked. It's really hard. It's kind of like getting into medical school is really tough. Once you get in, it's really hard to not get through it if you do the work. Well, the same is true here. It's really hard to get there, but if you get there, you'll probably do really well. Well, that's a great stat to know. So for those people that are out there that are worried that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, the internet access right now, and everybody has all these people put stuff up on social media. I think you mentioned, Stephen, that the Veritas is it's strictly confidential. So Right now, you can find out if I got a speeding ticket six years ago, right? If you look up my name, but this is all confidential, I would assume. And for those people out there that are afraid it's going to come out. Yeah, it's all confidential and critically important that this compassionate type care is done confidential. This is a safe place. 
But you know what's also really interesting? You know, when Dr. Sutcher and I and Bob Miller and Freedom Institute were really designing these programs pre-COVID, we were talking about the ability to do this virtually. And people would look at us and they would turn, that would dog, when a dog looks confused, they turn their head to the side, (laughs) (laughs) looks, saying, you want to do what? And what's fascinating now, because of COVID, the entire treatment field went to some version of telehealth. So literally, we thought would take three to five years, took three to five months. And here's what the data is coming back at. So we're a year into this right. So a lot of the big treatment centers, the Betty Ford Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, started publishing white papers. The Freedom Institute has a white paper coming out, sharing the data over the past year of virtual treatment as it compares to in-person treatment. And here's what the data suggests. Number one, you have patients like it and clinicians like it, higher patient engagement, and about the same rates of recovery. So- It's a fascinating piece of information that we're now having some real data to support that these virtual platforms work and they're here to stay in a post-COVID world. One other finding with telehealth is that patients are more willing to reveal and to be vulnerable than they are in person. That extra barrier has been helpful. In addition to everything that Stephen said, which is absolutely true, that's another added benefit to telemedicine and virtual treatment. Another thing, just to add, having done this a long time, when I started doing this, no matter how your level of severity, you were going to 30 to 90 days of residential treatment. And it's only in the last five to seven years that we started to see, look, there's varying degrees of substance use disorders, mild, moderate, severe, and that the mild and maybe early moderates can deal with outpatient. And now with the COVID, as well as what we've put together, the idea of virtual treatment is absolutely real. You guys are way ahead of the curve. Just to finish off here, Walk me through the process now of someone out there listening, physician, lawyer, because you do attorneys too, right? Right now we're in market with a, a medical program. Later this year, we'll have our lawyer program in market. So someone, I guess they call you and they say, hey, Steve or Dr. Sasha, I need some help. And then what happens from that point on? Just take me through the steps. Well, quite often what the, the first phone call comes from more often than not, the person who's referring them to treatment. So it could very well be a, a state monitoring program. It could be an employer. It could be a psychiatrist or psychologist that's working with a medical professional that needs a higher level of help. One of the things that we're starting to notice right now that with COVID right now, these frontline providers that are have experienced significant PTSD and trauma, and there's a lag between when you experience trauma And when you start to see a spike in substance abuse, we're starting to get to that point. So part of our programming is taking some of these trauma modalities and being able to do them virtually. So it's typically quite often the referent that's calling to us, giving us some specifics about what exactly is going on, learning about the type of programs we offer and whether it's an appropriate fit. Now, once in a while, we'll get a phone call from the end user that's not kind of premeditated from some type of outside source where we'll walk them through the program. But in any given situation, someone's going through an assessment, which is about a two-hour conversation that goes on between multiple clinicians and the patient 
which kind of fact finding, fact gathering, find out exactly what's going on, make sure that this is an appropriate fit because we're a virtual platform. Sometimes professionals will need a higher level of care. You also want to ascertain their willingness to get help. Right? That comes out in the conversation as well to determine, number one, if, if this is appropriate for you. You don't want me interrupting. So this person that takes the intake, are they physicians? Are they counselors? Who's the first person they're speaking to? First person you're speaking to is a clinician. In, and the clinician that we work with that are on our team have significant experience, significant mental health experience, have master's degrees, and have a significant experience working with physicians and healthcare providers. Okay. All right. So after the intake and it's a good fit, you assign them a counselor and... Yeah. How's that go? Well, the program that we have in market right now is something called an intensive outpatient program. So it's a three-month program. So it's 12 weeks in length. Now it's a very intensive program. So it consists of 10 hours of clinical treatment a week. So there are three three-hour groups each week. And the groups are a process group. One of the groups is co-facilitated by Dr. Sucher, where they have it's a platform for to really for medical professionals and physicians to talk about the issues that are specific to them, having a medical license, what do you disclose or don't disclose to a patient, to an employer? What do you do about being around medications in the workplace, things around that nature? It's also, we're a DBT-based program. That's a type of treatment modality that we use. It teaches skills in real time to deal with emotions and feelings and we just brought on someone to teach guided meditation. So really fascinating. You know, mindfulness is one of the DBT skills, and we want to teach medical professionals how to meditate. So we think that's critically important as well. And the other thing that's really unique about our program is, is we incorporate coaching into the program as well. So there's clinical treatment. And then in addition to that, there's a weekly meeting with a physician coach, which really gives you the opportunity to work with a colleague peer support, but also to help navigate the intricacies of, of being a healthcare provider today in today's day and age. Yeah, and mindfulness and meditation is something uh, we had Dr. Jonathan Fisher, shout out to him, who's had a great interview, who talked about how mindfulness and meditation really saved him from major depression. And now he teaches it and does some great things. Well, I really uh, felt the connection towards you because I listened to that interview and and you said you can meditate for 15 seconds. So I was like, wow, that's my type of guy. <laughs> well, I think I said five seconds, but I've been working on it. I, I joked that you know, I think my ADD, the great thing about that episode is I said, Jonathan, I think I can only last five seconds. And he said, that's a long time. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess it takes time to get there, but I'm learning how to try to do that. And Jonathan's been helping me with that. Dr. Susher, with this program, is there a point where someone, you may have to refer someone to inpatient or so far that's been pretty successful? I think we've done a really good job of screening people and referring them to a higher level of care on the front end. But sure, like any medical condition, more information or the course of treatment can say that somebody's more severe than we thought and that they may need a higher level of care. And we certainly have the ability to do that. And I have a network of uh, residential programs around the country that I've referred people to for years that understand health professionals. Well, thank you. I mean, that is uh, really a great conversation that we just had about a very difficult topic. Something, as I said in the interview, people don't want to speak about. But I think that one of the things I love about this podcast is that I learn every single week 
from someone. And also, I think I'm providing a service. So if there's one person out there who has a concern about a colleague or a friend, or maybe it's themselves, this is an option that maybe not everybody knows about. So I think you guys are way ahead of the curve on this. I'm certainly nowhere near an expert on this topic, but I've learned an awful lot. And what's the best way for someone out there to get in touch with Veritas? There are multiple ways. You can visit us at our website at www.veritassolutions.com. Another way to meet us is we just launched a free CME webinar series. For those doctors that are on this, listening to this podcast, they can participate and get continuing education webinar credits. That's on March 9th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have an incredible group of thought leaders, Dr. Sutcher being one of them, talking about a roadmap beyond the pandemic. We think about what the future has in store and working with medical professionals, with mental health, and what we've learned during COVID. So that's another great way to meet the team as well. And they can sign up for that webinar through your website? Correct. That's fantastic. So thank you, gentlemen. This has been... uh a really very educational, very inspiring. Stephen, your story is inspiring. And thank you for giving back. This is such an important topic. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead, hit subscribe and download all the previous episodes that we spoke about. All the contact information will be on the show notes. You can get in touch with me through my website, theorsiniway.com or drorsini at theorsiniway.com. That's Dr. Orsini at theorsiniway.com. So thank you, gentlemen. Have a great day. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.